Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I want to say a special thanks to the gentlemen that all assembled in the last hour for Guy Talk. That was a lot of fun. Did he just say uh, Bill Arnold and me? No. I think he did. What are you talking about? You just introduced yourself, and you said, yeah, yeah, it's me and Bill Arnold. Did I really? i got to check the tape. I think you need to sit in a chair for a while, bud. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's Dr. Mark Muska, who uh, chimed in before I introduced him. So I love yeah. that. Yeah, you're very comfortable here in the studio. Yeah, we yeah. have fun. Yeah, we do have fun. And I think that's the fun part of studying God's Word is it is so exciting, and it should be, because it is... Uh, it builds you up. It builds you up, yeah. If you have questions for Ask the Professor, I've got one in studio. His name is Dr. Mark Muska. He's been a professor here at the University of Northwestern for several decades uh, 37 years, approximately. Something like that. Give or take a couple of years. I can't count that. I... I get it. So let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. If you've got a really long question, you can email it to me, bill at myfaithradio.com. Mark, welcome. That's nice to be here. Yeah. So um, I want to talk uh, about imputed righteousness. Sometimes mm-hmm. you hear words and people hear mm-hmm. words and they, they don't know what it means Sometimes they're reluctant to ask what it means. They know it's serious. They know it's something serious. Ooh, imputed. Imputed. What does it mean? I don't know, but it's serious. Yeah. And has it happened to me? Mm Mm-hmm. You know? If you've put your trust in the gospel, it has. Maybe you do a a job of explaining that a little bit for us. Well, imputation, a couple other ways that you can talk about it. Uh, One of them is okay, but it's kind of uh, abstract, too, is to say reckoned righteousness. To be reckoned righteous by God or imputed righteousness from God. Uh, the one I like is to explain that with you are credited righteousness. It's, uh, it's a nice analogy to use a bank account. That because of our sin, Adam has imputed sin to us and guilt. So we are credited with sin and guilt and death. Mm-hmm. We're like... Uh, uh, prisoners that have been sentenced to death, waiting on death row for us to be executed. And uh, th- through uh, through Christ, it's like having a bank account that you're a gazillion dollars in the hole, way more than you ever can pay. Mm-hmm. And then when God justifies us, when he does this process of justifying us, it's got two parts to it. He forgives our sin. He cancels the debt. So he brings our account up to zero but then where reckoning or imputing comes in, he doesn't leave it at zero. We are credited the righteousness of Christ. We are imputed the righteousness of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so now when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. It, and this is, is, this is a standing we have. Of course, we are not righteous yet. We struggle with sin and temptation all the time. But to, the way he looks at us is he sees us in Christ. And that's the key thing. The 
imputation of righteousness and justification is all built on the idea theologically that's all over the place in the New Testament of us being in Christ or united with Christ. And there's different ways that's understood. I think the best one is to say it's like a legal standing. It's like a man and a woman go before a pastor and they make vows to one another. And now legally they are seen as one, Mm -hmm. as husband and wife. And so we are seen with Christ. We are in Christ. You know how many times that's just dozens in the New Testament where Paul especially will say that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And that is that is the basis for us, for God to be able to credit us righteousness. Mm-hmm. It's because of the righteousness of Christ that we're joined to. So really, it's a little bit deep, but it's good deep. But, Mark, if we think of the legal transactions that happen where Adam sins and the, the this Adam's sin gets legally transferred to us when we're born, so we're born with a sin condition, mm-hmm. Jesus goes to the cross and the sin of the world gets legally sort of transferred onto him. Mm-hmm. And then once we come to saving faith in, in Christ and are born again, the righteousness of Jesus gets legally transferred to us. Credited to us. Credited to us, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If people want to read the the standard passage to look at this is in Romans 5, uh, starting in verse 12, where Paul talks about one man, Adam, and what happened to us because of him, and then one man, Jesus, and what happens to us now through him. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we are separated from God, we are corrupted, and there's nothing we can do about it. Mm -hmm. But then he goes on from that to say, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So the one cooked us, and the other one delivered us. Mm. It's great stuff. It is great stuff. Mm-hmm. Here's a comment. Uh, don't you think it's funny that the angel who rolled back the stone in Matthew 28 then was sitting on it as if to say, what took you so long? I don't know. He just, he might have been enjoying himself. You know? <laughs> it's hard to know yeah. what angels are thinking and feeling, but yeah. you, you, you just wonder. That yeah. It's such a mag- mag- magnificent thing because Matthew also says, and his appearance was like lightning. And these soldiers that were there, they hit the deck like dead men. They were terrified. And if you look at it, the angel even has to say to the women, do not be afraid. Have you ever noticed that before? Mm-hmm. When Gabriel came to Mary, do yeah. not be afraid. Yeah. Why do you think they said that? Because they're terrifying. These angels, you know, we think of cute little fat babies when we right. think of cherubim, you know, and I'll tell you what, they are not cute, fat, fat little babies. They are terrifying. The seraphim, the word seraph means burning one. So can you imagine what a seraph looks like? Yeah. So they, they are awesome. But yeah, it's, isn't it a fun little detail where Matthew says, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. Like, yeah, here I Fantastic. am. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So when they looked into the tomb, what did they see? Well, they saw the clo- the, the uh, burial clothes there, okay. but they were empty. And uh, they, they, uh, 
They were filled. I love, again, Matthew, he says they were uh, terrified. They were filled with fear, but also with great joy Mm. that it just, wow. It just hit them like lightning. And is there a gospel account that says there were two angels in there? That I'd have to look at. I haven't studied that uh, uh, recently, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me. It shows the genuineness of these where these accounts were written independently. They didn't uh, fudge with one another. And do you know this detail, Mark, about the the head wrapping that Jesus had on was folded and neatly placed to the side. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is mm-hmm. uh, works with the tradition of dining in earlier uh, first century when you would leave the table to go relieve yourself and you may not be back for twenty yeah. minutes and yeah. you would you would uh, neatly fold your napkin and place it to the side to let the server know that you're coming back. Mm. And if you were done, you just take your napkin and drop it in the center of the mm. plate. How about that? The meal up? is over. I just know that face cloth has had a long history to it, and I can't remember, isn't it called the Shroud of Turin, where uh, there was the archaeological claim that this was actually the face cloth of Jesus because it had an imprint of a man's face Mm -hmm. who looked like he had been suffering. And uh, I don't think that thing was suffered, though. Turin is in Italy, isn't it? And so I think it was suffered... discovered over a thousand years later. I mean, it was gone for a long time and there were all kinds of claims made. And then they did scientific studies on it and the whole business and concluded that it was not genuine, but it did not seem to be completely persuasive to me. And so I leave the door open to that. There might be more to that shroud than uh, the conclusions that have been drawn by it. But to think of that, even as a possibility of this face cloth of Jesus there, mm-hmm. uh, that they they have it, they have the thing. So Yeah, that scene at the empty tomb must have been... Glorious. Unbelievable. There's no way to comprehend that. You know Jesus is operated outside the lines here because a, a couple different times on his way to Jerusalem, he tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen. He says, Son of Man's going into Jerusalem. He will be rejected. He will be arrested. He'll be convicted. He'll be crucified. And three days later, he'll rise again. And they still are, I don't think it registered. Maybe it's because they were so concerned when he said that he was going to die, but they didn't get the resurrected part. There's a lot of that, that early in John's gospel, you know, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the earth for three days. And John throws in a little cryptic little comment there to say they didn't understand what he was saying until after the resurrection. And Mm -hmm. then it was like, okay, the light just went on. We get this. We got to give the apostles a little room. They were human flesh and blood. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's clear from the night uh, in John 13 through 17, when Jesus tells the apostles that he's leaving them, they were not happy they they were very troubled by that. That's why he had to reassure them, in my Father's house are many mansions. If I go there to play, uh, prepare a place for you, I will come back for you. So that uh, I, I think sometimes we put too much of a halo around these guys and don't realize they, they had real fears and concerns and joys uh, with the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't, I, I thought the shroud... Uh, was more than just the face. It could be. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact I, details yeah, of that. It yeah. might be more of a cloak that yeah, was yeah, around yeah. him. But, yeah. uh, Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. we are take a little break, and we'll be back with your questions. If you've got some, let me know what they are, 877-933-2484. <clears throat>
So glad to have Dr. Mark Muska, my friend, here in studio with me. We call this segment Ask the Professor. So if you have a question, let me know. I'll ask him. 877-933-2484. Mark, do you believe Christ rode into Jerusalem on the 10th of Nisan and was crucified on the 14th of Nisan? It's it's possible. You know, I mean, the, we, we just were talking about this with the timing of all those events. It doesn't seem like there's enough days in there to accommodate for everything. Yeah that takes place. And so uh, the actual historicity of the events, there's there's clues given in the scripture like that, but there's also a ton of church tradition and history behind this where they took it in certain directions. It, mm-hmm. It's very similar to the questions we have around Christmas time, you know. Exactly. Jesus really born on December 25th? Well, probably not, but we still celebrate it then. And so I honestly don't get too worked up about that, Bill. The, the important thing is we commemorate the death and resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just let God sort out all those yeah. details of yeah. how many days it was. On Tuesday's program, uh, Jeff Dorn went into detail on that. I don't know if you are asking that question in response to Jeff's uh, presentation on Tuesday, but if you uh, go to the website, you can certainly hear that mm-hmm. hour with him. If you want to hear his uh, presentation, I thought it was very compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another question. Why was only Miriam struck with leprosy after she and Aaron criticized Moses in Numbers 12. Yeah, boy, you know, you can speculate about that all day long. Uh, With, uh, you know, just one, it might have been uh, Aaron's role as the high priest in there. Uh, It may be she was the one who initiated all this more than him. I mean, to me, there's just at least three or four possibilities there of what was going on. And uh, when the scripture doesn't detail that out for me, I I back away and don't try to get too specific either because mm-hmm. we just don't know. And we have to, we have to accommodate that to the scripture that the scripture's tale isn't exhaustive. It doesn't give us every factual detail of these, uh, of these events. Mm-hmm. I've heard this expression, Mark, what, what you're doing speaks so loudly. I can't hear what you're saying. You know how <laughs> actions always are you know, mm-hmm. louder than words. And you think of, the greatest compliment ever, if you get it in your life, is something's different about you. What what mm-hmm. what is it about you mm-hmm. that your life is? You know, there you go. Fill in the blank. Whatever else right. is said. Let's go back to Jesus and his twelve disciples. And Judas is spending three years with the greatest man that's ever lived, mm-hmm. who is completely one hundred percent loving, kind in every way. And he doesn't quite see it. Yeah. The, yeah. The boy, you know, the, you can do a profile on Judas. I don't know how happy of a study that would be. It's mm. kind of like <laughs> studying Satan, you know. I mean, you just, uh, you need to do it because you have to try to understand. But uh, he's an interesting character. There's a lot of things going on there. And you can speculate till the cows come home as far as what happened to him. Was he originally a sincere apostle and then something happened that took him away? You just get little hints and pieces. Because uh, uh, remember when, uh, uh, who is it, uh, Mary that anoints Jesus with this ointment that is so expensive, mm-hmm. and Judas protests, you know, we could have sold this for a lot. 
and giving the money to the poor. But then I believe it's in John's gospel, that account, and John throws in there. But Judas was saying this because he was pilfering from the money box. And so something going on there, you know, that there's there's more than just what we're able to discern. Mm-hmm. So you get the little hints like that, that uh, uh, did he have repentant remorse when he came into the Jewish leadership and through the money that he had received for betraying Jesus? Uh, you don't get much sympathy in the scriptures for him. Uh, Jesus himself called him the son of perdition. And so I don't have a lot of great hope for Judas as far as somehow a, a 11th hour repentance before he killed himself. Uh, but you you just kind of have, it's like a jigsaw puzzle where you're missing about a third of the pieces and you're trying to piece this together about him and his life. And it, it's just very difficult. But it seems to be, I can accommodate it though, Bill, even, uh, you know, directly referencing your question, people can be right next to the holiness of God and miss it. And Judas isn't the only one mm-hmm. that that happened to. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's, uh, we can never underestimate the power of sin and corruption and warping us, even to the point of our thinking becoming warped. Uh, I don't want to talk about it too much, but I think this, you know, you can raise this speculatively about Satan himself. Why did he orchestrate it so Jesus was crucified? He could read the Old Testament prophecies. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying leading up to Jerusalem. (laughs) You're going to crucify me and I'm going to rise from the dead. And so uh, he's no dope. Why did he put him on the cross then so that he would be able to rise from the dead and triumph that way? And my only realistic answer I have to speculate on is he thought he could keep him in the grave because he was so corrupted with his ego and his you know self-love mm-hmm. that he thought he could win over Jesus. So he saw the prophecies and he could say, no, nope, I'm going to stop it. It's not going to happen. To us, that sounds like the most horse-headed, stupid thing that yep. you could think. Yep. But think of a being who has been corrupted by sin for all those centuries, all those millennia, and what that did to his thinking. Uh, it gets even to us as humans. You know, sometimes we talk about the idea of being corrupted by sin, but we don't include our minds in there and our thinking. We think, oh, well, you know, we can see over the top of the clouds with the sin hits us in our passions, in our emotions, in our will and all that kind of stuff. But we can think clearly. And again, where are you getting that from? That we are completely corrupted by sin, even in the way we think. So our thinking is warped. It is, it's, it's corrupted. And so we can't really think straight a lot of the time. We've used this illustration before. The 55-year-old guy that runs out on his wife and family to go off and have an affair mm-hmm. with the 22-year-old uh, woman, you know, tell me that's rational. <laughs> Absolutely not. He, that's the stupidest thing he can do. But th- that shows you the warped nature of the mind, that when you get captured by sin like that, you don't think real clearly. Yeah, really, really true. All right, we've got a resurrected Jesus, yep. and I'm in Matthew 27. Verse 16. Well, he's not resurrected yet, if it's 27. Of course. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Well, you're not talking Matthew 27. I'm sorry. Am I not? Where am I? No, I'm sorry. I'm in Matthew 28. Yeah, that sounds better. He's he's in the tomb until Matthew 28. Yes, no, he's resurrected now. (laughs) All right. Well, that's when they meet in Galilee, isn't it? it yeah. And Let me re-ask the them. question. 
Okay, um, start again. Yeah, start again. Matthew 28, okay? So he's already resurrected, and in verse 16, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where mm-hmm. Jesus had told them to go. Mm-hmm. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Yep. What were they doubting, and why would they be doubting looking at a resurrected Jesus? Yeah, again, it's easy for us to be real hard on these guys and say, what's the matter with you, you nincompoops? You yeah, know, exactly. You can see Jesus right in front of you. Yeah, hello. But uh, who knows what's going on? We know we had at least one candidate that's had to live with this for all time when Thomas doubted it, and and so maybe he was one of those, or there were others as well. Uh, you know, Bill, we, we're so hard on people. Uh, can the can we give the apostles a little room there? That oh, I know. It, it's going to take a little while to adjust to this fact that Jesus is raised from the dead and he's talking to us again. I think I'd be a little shell shocked yeah. at first, and you know, and doubted. Uh, I just was talking about doubt with my students this week in class, and somehow we stigmatize doubt in in the church. We think, man, if you're doubting, you're a sinner. We got to pray for you. I thought you were more mature than that, you know, <laughs> that you're having uh-huh. doubts, and that is completely false. That doubts are a part of our relationship with Christ, and all of us have questions and doubts that we can't answer real well, but we work on them and we try to settle them and and come to a place where we believe or don't believe something, but uh, let's let's let up on the gas pedal a little bit here with the apostles and give them some room. I can I can I can see maybe I would have had some doubts too. Maybe. Really? Yeah. Yeah. There are some there are some people that will feel embarrassed or ashamed that their child is having doubts, yeah. or a, or a sibling or something, and you think, well, I can't believe you're having doubts. Yeah. And you just almost panic for them, or you yeah. feel a little. Well, it doesn't always work this way, but doubts can often be a pathway to a stronger faith. Because when you have those questions, what I recommended to my students was to to take steps to resolve those doubts, that you either can resolve them or at least minimize them and get closer to understanding. And when you do... You've got a stronger faith. You have doubt about Jesus' resurrection? We've got lots of apologetics that you can read that give us compelling evidence for this being a historical reality. And if you've got doubts, read this stuff and make a decision based on that. Your faith will be stronger because you've you've done some work to resolve those doubts. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and we call this segment Ask the Professor. And, of course, he's a professor here at the University of Northwestern. So if you have any questions, let me know what it is you have, 877-933-2484. That's a text line. And if you are more comfortable uh, with email, you can send me an email with a question. And that's bill at myfaithradio.com. So that's the, those are your options. You can text it to 877-933-2484 or email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. We'll be right back.
Back with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor. Let me know what your questions are. Mark, here's a question. Uh, what was the significance of the temple veil being torn in two when Jesus died? It would be nice to have a uh, diagram that we could show of the way the tabernacle and the temple were put together. So I'll do my best to try to describe this. The tabernacle and temple were big. They covered quite a bit of ground, but within them, there was an inner sanctuary that consisted of a couple different rooms. One of them was called the the holy place, and then the other one was called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, sometimes it is called. And the priests had access into the holy place, but only the high priest had access into this holy of holies. And this temple curtain that's described as tearing, that was the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. The only one who went in there was the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur in the fall to offer the sacrifice for sins once for the past year. He poured that out on the mercy seat, which was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant that you saw in uh, Indiana Jones, that was in the most holy place or the Holy of Holies, but nobody got in there. That was the presence of God that was presenting itself in the Holy of Holies. And so this idea now of the temple curtain being torn, it's it's. I think it's best understood that now we have access to God without having to have this priest come in yearly to offer this sacrifice. Jesus entered into the most holy place, and I, I really should be reading out of Hebrews right now because that's where he really nails it. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer talks about this, that since we have such a great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now come before God and are able to enter into his presence because of this. And so I like the, through the, the train of thought that says that this, this temple veil being torn is showing this. This would have been absolutely scandalous to the Jews that the most holy place was exposed. Mm-hmm. But now we have that access before yeah. God. So Now I know that the priest would enter that holy of holies once a year. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to think who was in that space when Jesus died and witnessed the tearing of the veil, the ripping of the veil from top to bottom. Well, they might have heard it from the outside, you know, yeah. you know yeah. the thing yeah. ripped. And it might be that they saw it later and they realized that this happened. But uh, let me read a little bit this from Hebrews 10 because this is just so good. It's in verse 19. He's just been talking about how Jesus is the magnum, magna opus high priest like no high priest in the Old Testament. And now he gets practical. He says, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is through his flesh. Those veil was a symbol of his flesh of doing this. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed 
with pure water. Wow, that's just spectacular that the writer of Hebrews understood what was happening here, this symbolism that was going on. Well, here's another question, Mark. Um, what does the ten virgins signify? Well, that is over in Matthew 25. So I'm going to page over there to get there. Uh, Jesus is in the middle of what is called the Mount of Olives Discourse that starts in chapter 24 of Matthew. And uh, they, uh, the disciples were with him, and he had just talked about how the temple is going to be destroyed. <laughs> and so they ask him in uh, verse 3, of Matthew 24, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, and now the rest, if you've got a red letter Bible, the rest of chapter 24 and 25 is all read. It's Jesus delivering this discourse. And what he does is he talks about his coming and the signs of his return. But then he has a couple of parables that he ends it with to make a case with them about what it means to be ready for his appearing. Because in this discourse, he says it, I think, three different times, Bill, where if I can find it here. Yeah, Matthew twenty four thirty six. Jesus says, but of that day when I return, that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Then he tells a little story in verse 42. He says, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, he says, for this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So is that sinking into everybody? Nobody knows when he's coming. He's coming at a tower, in fact, when nobody mm -hmm. is going to figure, at a time when we don't figure here. And now he's going to talk about what it means to be ready then for Jesus' return. In light of the fact that nobody knows when he's coming, what does it mean, mean to be ready? And he kicks it right, right off the, the roof to say, it doesn't mean you get some white robe on and stand up on the tallest building you can or mountain and look up and be looking <laughs> for Jesus. Mm -hmm. That is not being ready. Mm -hmm. But he uses the 10 virgins as an illustration of what it means to be ready. Because I, I should probably just read the parable. Is that okay? We got enough yeah, time please, for it. Yeah, please, yeah. Uh, he says, uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 25, Therefore the king of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in flasks along with these lamps. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will be not enough for us, and you too. Instead, go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then one last time for feeling, verse 13. But on that, uh, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. So because you don't know the day or the hour, it's very simple. What did the wise virgins do that the foolish didn't? Did you hear it? They bring extra oil mm. with them, right? The foolish virgins didn't, right? And the whole parable turns on verse 5, where Jesus says, 
Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, he wasn't coming as soon as they thought he would. Mm-hmm. And what happened? He, the bridegroom finally shows up, but the foolish uh, virgins don't have enough oil. In our case, we'd say flashlights, and they don't have extra batteries or something like that. And so they're left out of this thing. So if I'm understanding this right, what Jesus is saying is what it means to be ready is that you have planned and lived your life for the long haul, that you will be faithful throughout your entire life because Jesus may come back later than you think. He may not show up this year. <laughs> we don't know. Mm-hmm. And he, so we got to be ready to live for him for decades and not get caught short. And now we skipped over it, but at the end of chapter 24, he counterbalances this with the parable of the faithful uh, steward where he is doing what he was told to do and then the master appears suddenly and surprises him. And so that parable teaches us what does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? We're doing today faithfully what we've been given to do because Jesus might come back before we think. And so he hits both at bases. For ten virgins, he might be later than you think. Mm-hmm. So are you doing today and are you planning to do for tomorrow and next week and next year and next decade what is faithfully doing what God's given you to do? Because he might not show up for a while. So, so I know good. that's a long thing, but it's, no, so, it's, it's so good. It's so sweet the way Jesus pulls this thing together mm-hmm. so that they understand, yeah, being ready means being faithful right now and also being faithful over the long haul mm-hmm. and planning for that. Thank you. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. If you have a question, send it over, 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. So, Mark, let's talk about world events and, and like, the war that's going on in, in uh, yeah. Ukraine. Is it God's, is it not God's will to stop the invasion in Ukraine, in Ukraine, or do we not have enough faith in our prayers? Should I keep praying? Yeah. Well, you got to talk a little bit about what God's will is. Uh, I really like the way that some theologians have put this thing out there to say, when we talk about God's will, we're not always talking about the same thing. That on one level, we could say, okay, God is in charge of everything. Absolutely nothing happens without him doing it or allowing it. Nobody's going to do anything over a sovereign God, unless he, at the very least, allows it, if not causes it. So we have to say then that this war in Ukraine is God's will in that sense, that it's happening. Because if he didn't want it to happen, he could stop it any way of 50 different ways to stop the thing. So it sounds weird because it's bloody and it's awful. But in that sense, we have to recognize this is God, at the very least, allowing this to happen. But then there's also the notion of God's will being what he wants to have happen. We read that in the Bible. He doesn't want you murdering people. He wants you to love him with all your heart. And so we know what that is, but we don't always do it. And so sometimes is it God's will that this war continue on? I would argue in that sense that, you know, no, God is not for people killing each other like this. And he stands for us kindness, consideration, love toward one another as not just as a church, but as human beings. And so it is violating his his will in that sense. I don't know if that makes any sense to you all, but, it does. but it's you just have to be careful about the way you talk about 
about God's will with events going on like this. So when you talk about something real practical like prayer, then I pray like pray like crazy. God, end this thing. Stop the bloodshed. Do what you have to do to the people that are causing this to get them to stop. And so there's a there's a place for this to pray against evil and bloodshed and this kind of thing going on. But then I like to throw in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, uh, ending to that that Jesus said, where he said, but yet not my will, but yours be done. Mm -hmm. If he has plans and purposes that are being carried out through something even as awful as this is with this war, we have to submit to that, even though we don't get it. We don't understand what's going on. Because you know what, Bill? The ultimate rationale for that is the worst thing that's ever happened in human history we're celebrating tomorrow, where the perfect, righteous Son of God was brutally killed and executed unjustly. And God allowed that to happen, too. Mm -hmm. But we know why. Because he's the lamb that was slain so that we could be forgiven. Mm -hmm. So... uh, we can't second-guess God on these kind of things with yeah. Ukraine and, and think that we know what God's up to. So, you know, he, he'll baffle us every time or mm-hmm. something like that. We'll take a break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. And if you have a question, send it over, 877-933-2484, and we'll be right back. Mark Mosca is my guest. Ask the professor. So ask anything. 877-933-2484. Mark, do you have a, do you have a favorite gospel account when you uh, read about the last week of the life of Christ? Uh, do you gravitate towards one? Not anymore. Okay. When I was a kid, I was bored in church. And so I would read in the, the uh, liturgy, uh, the gospel of Mark, his story uh-huh. of the, uh, of the, uh, passion and all that kind of thing. And they had it in the liturgy because it was the shortest one. And so they stuck it in there. So I, I liked Marx a lot <laughs> when I was a kid. I was looking for something, you yeah. know, to, to relieve the boredom. Yeah. I just wasn't connected. It was more my fault, I think, than the churches. But uh, I I like the way Matthew approaches it. But, you know, any given year, any given day, they all just have so much to contribute. Yeah. You know, you look at John and John throws a whole lot of stuff in there that the other three don't have. That are it's very interesting what mm-hmm. he gets in there about the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection. So they all have a lot to offer. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. As I look at the time in the Garden of Gethsemane, mm-hmm. I sometimes lose sight of the fact that he did uh, prayer. Then he came back and approached. Right. Well, they they conked out. They, they fell asleep. Out. Yeah. Then he went back a second time. Then he went back a third time. Mm-hmm. Right. So at what point did he start to drip blood from the intensity of the praying? And did he oh, ever go, a, go yeah. back to the disciples and then ask, you're bleeding? Yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. a good question. I've never heard that one. I don't know of any kind of statement in the scriptures that elaborates on that at all, other mm-hmm. than he was 
so passionate that he was sweating blood. Yeah, but when I ever think of the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, it always seems in my mind to be a single focused prayer hmm. where he's praying and and with such pressure and anxiety that he's bleeding, he's sweating blood. And yet I read the accounts and he he prayed, then he went to the disciples and they're asleep, and then he goes back to pray, he goes back to the disciples and he goes back to pray. And I thought that's that's I didn't really focus on that ever. Yeah, yeah. It's something if you get the opportunity to go to Israel that you can walk through that garden and just uh, try to put yourself in the, the position of Jesus and the and the apostles that night. It just uh, it sobers you. Mm-hmm. You been to the Garden of Gethsemane? A couple times. What's it like? Great big uh, olive trees. Uh, beautiful. Is it just amazing to think he was there? Mm-hmm. And then you just go up the hill, and that's the Mount of Olives up there. The, mm-hmm. the garden is down toward. How far the, is Mount of Olives from the garden? Oh, it's only a matter of a couple hundred yards. Oh, really? Yeah, that you course. just you just go up the the side yeah. of the hill, and then from the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see down in the Kidron Valley. Well, that's the Kidron is where the 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 creek or the river goes through, and then the yeah, Garden of Gethsemane is on one side of that, and then on the other side it it. Uh, rises up to the uh, city itself and the city walls and the temple is right there on the east side of, mm-hmm. of the city. So. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the road to Emmaus? Yeah, that's kind of a fun thing. I could say a whole lot about that. I mean, don't ever give me anything that open-ended because, I, you know, we're going to be here until that's fine. Saturday I if, don't you, care. if you do I got that. time. But, uh, Rosie doesn't, any, but any, I do. Anything in particular you're interested in? What? What? Uh... Uh, just the whole episode. What? What do you find so fascinating about that encounter? It's kind of. It's fun to read the Gospels and try to place yourself in these settings. You're smelling the smells. You're seeing the sights. You're 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 feeling the things. You're you're clomping along on the road with these guys. And so, for people who don't know the. Uh, the uh, story. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He's just dazzled the apostles by coming into this room. He goes through the door to get in the room. And, you know, we talk about going through the door. We usually are going through the doorway. <laughs> uh, Jesus goes through the door. They right. think he's a spirit, so he's got to reassure them that he really has flesh and all this. But then after that, the, uh, that, uh, uh, situation. There's these two men in uh, chapter 24, verse 13. Are we in Luke? I am. Okay. And he says, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other, all these things that had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet, mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to return to Israel. Uh, indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened. But some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning, did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
And then they went to the tomb and saw that as well. And then verse 25, Jesus says, And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And I love verse 27. Man, I wish I would have been a cricket on the bag, you know, as they're walking along there. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Wow. Wow. Think of that walk yeah. with them. And then they finally get to their place and they're ready to eat and they invite Jesus in. But as soon as he breaks the bread, he disappears and he's gone. So, but <laughs> it's, it's a great story. And again, I like it. I don't want to come back to this theme too much, but we got to give these apostles and these followers a, a break here. They're trying to put this together. It's easy for us sitting on our high horses 2,000 years later saying, you dopes, why don't you believe what Jesus said? But they're trying to figure this out. You know, we were, we're just so saddened. This guy got put to death, and now these women are talking about him being raised from the dead. It, you can just hear the ambivalence there, can't you, where it's like a little bit of hope but a whole lot of sad uh, with them. And uh, Jesus is able to uh, teach them, reassure them. Mark, I think there's just that that response that says if these disciples who were with Jesus still were having doubts, how in the world am I not supposed to have doubts? And I think the yeah. answer is we're supposed to have doubts, right? I don't know if supposed to, you know, I mean that, uh, but it's it's understandable. I mean, we have doubts as we study, and then we mm-hmm. study and those doubts get removed. Yeah, but I mean, that's the, just the process, doubts, are, doubts are like dandelions, though. You know, you answer two or three questions, and then the next day you got five or six over there, and you got to deal with those. And so I think I might have more questions today than I've ever had, Bill, because you just, you, you can't, plumb the depths of Scripture sufficiently. It's always deeper than what we're able to understand. But that keeps you going back in there and reading it and studying it and talking with other people about it and praying about it. It's a living word. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's fun. Mm-hmm. When we look at James chapter 3, verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, Full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Mm -hmm. Isn't that amazing? It's truly amazing. Well, we think of wisdom, we think of intellect, and everything that James names there has much more to do with character Mm -hmm. than it does with intellect. A lot of smart people don't have any of that stuff. And so there's, uh, you should have contrasted it with what he said earlier. He says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart and do not and, and do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is a disorder of every evil thing. So he says, the wisdom from below, yuck. Mm. Wisdom from above, yeah, this is what we aim for. So if you're hearing things that are coming from the enemy, you're going to be able to tell the difference because this will be wisdom that isn't pure, peace-loving, considerate, mm-hmm. full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. I like especially that good fruit because it reminds you of the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. It bears good fruit. You see good character, good be- good behavior come out of that. Mm-hmm. Well, Mark, it's uh, it's always a great time in fellowship just to be here with you, especially this week. And I so appreciate you taking 
time sure. of your holy week to be here with us and uh there's a lot of great questions that came in and yeah i, I just um i just love you and i love our friendship and i always feel like when you come in i'm going to hear an incredible amount of wisdom depth and now i'm trying to you're kind of buttering butter your bread over you there. You know? I, you know, does it kill you to just hear a little of this once in a while? You want me to just call me St. Mark now? Is that I, what I'm you want? Okay. I'm no. cool with that. You better not. Well, yeah. thank you. Because number one, my wife will get after me, and number two, <laughs> God will be right behind her to yeah. get after me. Yeah. So don't get into Are that. Are you going to see the grandsons uh, over Easter? No, we just saw them last weekend. They're, they're in Sioux Falls for this weekend, but it was chaos, bedlam, and anarchy all yeah. weekend. It was in great. In that order? I don't know. <laughs> we had so much fun. Yeah. They're growing up and they're getting smarter and they're getting faster. I can't beat them racing anymore. Really? That kind of stuff. Yeah. But they're life givers. It's so much fun. No kidding. Well, a blessed Resurrection Sunday to you and your Same family. Same to you. Thank Christ you so is risen. He's risen indeed. Yeah. Yeah. That's the show we have for tonight. Thank you so much for being with me today. And if you missed any of the show, we had uh, a very spirited guy talk. You can always go to myfaithradio.com check out the show page and the podcast you can listen to it and enjoy it uh, for the first time or maybe a second time and this podcast as well with dr mark muska is available in just uh 15 or 20 minutes and if you missed any of this this is another great hour have a great night everyone i'll see you tomorrow Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.